Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Yes, I too am sponsored by the internet's leading provider of audiobooks. Now, I'm going to assume that you've listened to plenty of History of Rome and Dan Carlin podcasts, so you know the deal. You can get a free audiobook that comes with a 30-day free trial of Audible service, if you live in the USA. I don't plan on bombarding you with adverts for Audible, but I'd like you to know that this offer is available and your free trial will help the history of Byzantium continue. So if you're interested, please use the link audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to see what they have to offer. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 34, Overbalancing. Last time, we saw the Emperor Justin II descend into madness after the loss of the city of Dara to the Persians. The capture of the strategically important fortress came on the heels of plague, financial strains, religious disunity, and military defeats. The empire that Justinian had left behind was collapsing all around his successor, and something had to be done. Justin and his wife Sophia agreed that a new Caesar was needed to lead the response. The man they chose was the general Tiberius. This was not an automatic choice, as the extended imperial family contained many male relatives who could argue their own case for promotion. But with war breaking out on every front, an experienced general was clearly needed to take charge, and being a friend of the emperor's, Tiberius was known and trusted. Given what happens next, I suspect that Sophia also felt that someone from outside the imperial family might allow her to maintain her own position. A male relative would presumably have brushed the empress aside and moved his own family into the palace whereas Tiberius, as an outsider, would rely on the empress for his legitimacy. We don't know much about the early life of Tiberius. We don't know his other names or how old he was. Our best guess is that he was in his mid-thirties around the time he became Caesar, which would place his birth around 540. He was from somewhere in the Latin-speaking part of Thrace, which may help explain his friendship with the relatives of Justinian. And upon his accession, he added the name Constantine 
to his own, to add a little imperial dignity to his undistinguished background. He did, of course, share the name of the second emperor of Rome, and would in time become Tiberius II. But during the Christian era, an association with a pagan emperor, and one with a poor moral reputation, was not seen as an advantage. Despite his disastrous foreign policy, Justin II had managed to gain control of the empire's finances. When Tiberius took power, he saw that the treasury had a comfortable reserve built up, and decided that it was time that the government gave back. The crowning of a new emperor was always accompanied by donatives for the troops, but Tiberius added further gifts to all the guilds in the capital, with gold, silver and silk flying out of the palace. Furthermore, the new Caesar remitted one quarter of that year's taxes and put an end to the unpopular levy on bread. Well, no wonder he was popular. Unlike his two predecessors, Tiberius was quickly a much-loved figure. He was a younger man, of course, and his strong military response to the Persians was always likely to go down well with the public. An outbreak of plague had ceased soon after he was elevated, which didn't hurt either. Of course, cutting taxes and increasing state handouts is all very well, as long as you're not also increasing expenditure. But yes, you guessed it, Tiberius was planning to spend. To be fair, it was no frivolous scheme. It was focused on the empire's military problems. But needless to say, this combination was not about to lead to financial stability. The increased spending on the army was in the form of a recruitment drive. Tiberius had grown up in an era when the Persians had repeatedly got the better of the Byzantines. Justinian had determined early that the Sassanids should be paid to be peaceful because the empire needed troops in the west as well as the east. Tiberius decided to change that dynamic. Why should the empire accept these losses in the east? Why not recruit a large army, go east and crush our inveterate enemy just as emperors had done in the old days? During 575 then, Tiberius concluded two treaties. One with the Avars, who for 80,000 nomismata, or gold coins a year, would agree to guard the Danube frontier. And the other with Khosrow, who for 30,000 would keep a truce for the next three years, though this excluded Armenia. With a temporary peace in place, Tiberius began transferring troops from the armies of Illyricum and Thrace to the east, while recruiting more native Byzantines into the army, and then he put out a call to those beyond the frontiers, announcing that a permanent job was being offered to foreign soldiers who wanted to join the legions. After three years of recruiting, Tiberius had his new force, some 15,000 men strong, made up largely of barbarian troops from as far afield as the Rhine. We know this force as the Federates, a title which makes sense given the majority foreign composition. As you know, Roman allies used to fight as auxiliary troops alongside the legions, but as powers like the Franks or Goths would settle on or within the borders of the empire, they would be known as Federate troops or Foderati. 
Tiberius even found some men to send to Italy, where the Lombards looked temporarily vulnerable after the deaths of both King Alboin and his successor. But the imperial force was defeated, and Lombard settlement continued. Interestingly, Tiberius sent the Lombards a large cash payment to convince them not to elect a new king. On the surface, this looked like a political bribe to spare Byzantine blushes over having an enemy king rule in Italy. But clearly Tiberius was looking ahead and thinking that a leaderless rabble would be easier to crush once he had dealt with the Persians. At home, the emperor's popularity was reinforced by his religious policies. Justinian had deposed the patriarch Eutychius just before he died, because he wouldn't support the elderly emperor's bizarre monophysite compromise. And so Tiberius was roundly commended for allowing Eutychius to return to his post when his successor John passed away. The emperor also cut off any further persecution of the monophysites and left them to their own doctrinal disputes, which flared up again after the death of Jacob Baradius in 578. But while Tiberius was organising his forces, Kusro was on the move. Leading his army personally, he marched deep into Byzantine Armenia in 576. After sacking the cities of Sebastea and Melitene, the King of Kings found himself in a bit of trouble. The locals had fled, taking their flocks and other resources with them. The large Persian army were a long way from their supply lines and were being shadowed by the army of the east, led by Justinian. This was Germanus's second son. Justinian brought the Persians to battle in a river valley and defeated them. And this was the first time that Kusro had been beaten by the Byzantines and he had to retreat in a hurry towards the mountains. The Byzantine troops that followed up then captured the great monarch's tent with all its gold, silver and pearls that he carried with him even on campaign. Justinian's army followed on the heels of the fleeing Persians and sent many to a watery death as they fled back across the Euphrates. The following year though, the Persians were able to put together another force which defeated Justinian as he crossed into Persian Armenia. The defeat was clearly severe enough that Kusro abandoned plans for a comprehensive peace treaty, just as the truce which excluded Armenia was about to end. But Tiberius was now ready. As Justin had done with him, Tiberius appointed his Count of the Excubitors, Maurice, to be commander of the Eastern Army. With the reinforcements from the West and the 15,000 new federates, the Byzantines had gathered the largest army seen on the Eastern Front since Julian had marched out to sack Tessaphon some 200 years before. And this time, their commander had clear objectives. In spring 578, the Persians broke the truce by raiding Byzantine Mesopotamia, and Maurice marched in counterattack into Persian Armenia. He captured and garrisoned a Persian stronghold named Afumon, and then marched south and sacked the city of Singara. The map which accompanied episode 11 will fill you in on where these places are. These final defeats were to be the last major events of Kusro's life. 
he would die in early 579, aged 78. The old King of Kings was understandably shaken by this large Byzantine army on his western frontier. But he had an historic reign to be proud of, and is remembered for far more than just his wars with the Roman Empire. The brand new History of Iran podcast will eventually reach this period and tell us more about the Sassanids and their great kings. But from our point of view, Khusro joins the likes of Ardashir and Sharpor as big thorns in the Roman side. Back in Constantinople, Justin II also passed away at the end of 578. He was about 58 when he died, and had ruled the empire for nine years as a poor judge of foreign policy, and then spent another four years being cared for in the palace. The needless war with Persia, and a reminder that being emperor is the most stressful job in the world, are his sad legacy. His death, however, freed Tiberius to assume the title of Augustus and finally rid himself of the influence of Sophia. The empress had spent the last four years retaining some executive power and her position in the palace. In fact, we're told that the empress kept the keys to the imperial treasury away from Tiberius when she saw the lavish prizes he handed out upon his accession. And although that sounds like a sensible precaution, it was always going to lead to a break between them. Sophia had insisted that Tiberius's wife Eno and her family should live outside of the palace and should have no contact with the Senate. And now that Justin was dead, she even got the patriarch Eutychius to suggest strongly to Tiberius that he ought to divorce his wife and marry the empress. Tiberius was having none of this, and moved his family into the palace, crowning his wife Empress, and giving her the more imperial name of Anastasia. If the new Augustus was not so popular, these moves might have caused public concern, but news of Maurice's victories in the east meant that as far as the people of the capital were concerned, Tiberius could do no wrong. In fact, that feeling was empire-wide for the next four years, as the new Augustus celebrated by remitting a quarter of the taxes owed across the whole empire. Despite the outrageous deficit the emperor was creating, events temporarily continued to go his way. In Italy, an attack on Ravenna was successfully pushed back, and in Africa, the Moorish chief Germal was finally killed, ending the uprising there. Even from Spain came good news when a Visigothic prince, Hermengild, converted to Catholicism and agreed to work with the Byzantines to defeat his Aryan father, Leovigild. Sophia would plot to overthrow the emperor, but the conspiracy was discovered, and she was closely watched from then on. But Tiberius's luck couldn't hold. He had tried to solve the balancing act which Justinian had left his successors by trusting the Avars to keep to their side of the Danube while he made war on the Persians. But the Avars were not ones to stand still. They knew full well that the emperor had stripped the Balkans of troops and planned to take advantage of that. In 579, they put the strategically important city of Sirmium under siege. If you want to look at the map which accompanied episode 9, 
You can see why that city was so important. And you can see a scale model photo, either on Facebook or at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. It guarded the point where the Sava and Danube rivers met and would give the Avars a dangerously strong position to raid Illyricum if they took it. Sirmium, in fact, occupied a similar position to that of Dara in the east. It was highly valuable because it was well fortified, allowing the Byzantines to keep soldiers, supplies and weapons on the front line. By this time, the army knew that they couldn't prevent the raids which regularly plagued the Balkans. The Danube frontier was too long, and the tribes beyond it too numerous. But with cities like Sirmium in hand, the empire could protect its precious military resources and launch counterattacks, or cut the raiders off as they attempted to carry their loot home. The threat to Sirmium was serious, but that wasn't the worst news. With the Avars occupied in the west, an estimated 100,000 Slavs crossed the Danube and made their way south. The migration had begun in 577, when a Slav raid on the empire had been punished by their Avar overlords. Byzantine authors didn't understand the Slavs as a people particularly well at this point, but one observation that seems accurate was that the Slavs loved their freedom. They would not buckle under easily in the face of political domination. And like the Lombards before them, many Slavs decided that being ruled by the Avars was worse than fending for themselves within the Byzantine Empire. The absence of much of the imperial army meant that instead of running and hiding, many of the invaders took towns or farms for themselves and simply began to work them out in the open, unafraid of reprisals. The settlers spread out across Thrace, Macedonia and Greece, looking for spots to permanently call home. Although these particular migrants will feel the sting of an imperial counterattack soon, this is the beginning of permanent, large-scale Slavic settlement in the Balkans. And as you know from our world today, they will be staying. Realizing that he put way too many eggs in his eastern basket, Tiberius pushed the Persians to sign a peace treaty so that he could move some troops back west. However, Kusro's son, Hormis IV, was understandably not interested in beginning his reign by giving up Dara or any other territory that his father had won. Tiberius was also having trouble paying his 50,000-strong eastern army, and when their pay was late, there was more than a little talk of mutiny. Maurice led the army into Persia in the campaign season of 579 and raided beyond the Tigris River, hoping that Persian loot would help quell the rebellious noises. In 580, he attacked Persian Armenia again and marched down the Euphrates to within sight of Tessaphon before having to turn back. The Persians had raided Byzantine Mesopotamia, and the rumour which reached Maurice was that the Ghassanid chief Al-Mundir had let them. Mundir had returned to the fold and resumed his duties once Tiberius became emperor, but Maurice was clearly convinced of his treachery, because when he returned to the Byzantine side of the border, he had Mundir arrested. The Ghassanids were understandably outraged, 
and the loss of their king would eventually destroy the coalition of tribes which the Ghassanids led. Although at this moment the large eastern army was more than enough to protect the empire, the Byzantines would come to regret the dissolution of a force which had helped protect their desert frontier. There was little Tiberius could do to help the Balkans during this time. He eventually agreed to evacuate Sirmium and resume payments of subsidies to the Avars. But the Slavs continued to spread unchecked, one group apparently reaching Athens around the summer of 582. Meanwhile, Maurice finally brought the main Persian army to battle near the city of Constantina and mauled them. Their commander was killed, and their men fled back to Dara. Maurice could not follow up on this victory, though, as word came that the emperor was seriously ill, and he had news for his senior general. Maurice arrived back in Constantinople to find Tiberius near death. Tiberius had two daughters, and no sons, and announced that he planned to marry his daughter Constantina to Maurice, and his other daughter to Germanus. This Germanus was the third son of Germanus, as in the Emperor Justinian's cousin. Stay with me. This younger Germanus was born posthumously, and so would now have been in his early thirties. It seems like Tiberius was intending to divide the empire between the two men, a belated recognition, perhaps, that the empire just couldn't fight on two fronts at full strength. But for whatever reason, perhaps because he remembered from history what division leads to, he decided to simply crown Maurice as the new emperor. At least with his final decision, Tiberius had got it right. Both he and Justin should be commended for choosing capable military commanders to be emperor, rather than trusting their relatives just to keep it in the family. I neglected to mention last episode that in addition to making Tiberius Caesar, Justin also adopted him as his son. This meant that hereditary legitimacy was preserved, even if in reality Tiberius was selected for the role. In the case of Maurice, marriage to the emperor's daughter was considered legitimate enough. Tiberius's dying words to Maurice were apparently, Make your reign my finest epitaph. Maurice would do his best not to disappoint him. We have little evidence one way or the other as to what led to the emperor's death. One source claimed it was poisoned mulberries, although it doesn't elaborate on who would have poisoned him. If it was the Empress Sophia, then it was a futile and petty act. Her days in power were long gone. So whether it was poison or natural causes, the Emperor passed away in August 582. He was probably around 42 years old and had been the effective ruler of the Empire for eight years. In Justin II and Tiberius II, we have two opposite responses to the dilemma left by Justinian. Or, as we should all remember, left to them by Justinian and Yersinia Pestis. 
Justin had chosen to leave the army and the tax levels where they were, but found that when disaster struck one front or another, there was very little he could do about it. Tiberius had decided to do something about it. He picked a problem and transferred all of the empire's resources to the east. The result was success on that front and utter disaster on the other. Not only were Slavs turning loyal taxpayers off their farms, but the Avars now occupied the strongest city on the Danube, a frontier they already controlled the entire north bank of. It all left poor Maurice with a gargantuan task ahead of him. And in two weeks' time, we will see how the new emperor goes about finding his own way of dealing with Justinian's legacy. I'd like to close the episode this week by asking you for your questions. As you can see, we've moved from 565 to 582 in just two episodes, which means we are rapidly closing in on the end of the 6th century. It's my intention to stop the narrative at the end of each century and check in on how life has changed within the Empire and glance at any movements beyond the frontiers as well. I don't plan on doing a full walking tour as we did at the end of the 5th century, but I will comment on everything that I think is important. Of course, what I think is important may not be what you think is important, so please send me your questions. These can be on anything you like, but only within the time period we've covered in the podcast so far, which by the time we get there will be between 476 and 600 AD. So if it's a question about how people lived or how a part of the Byzantine state operated, or if you want more information on a particular character or people or incident, let me know. I may not know the answers, but it will help guide my research. In particular, if there's something I said that wasn't clear, please ask. I'd like to cover everything I can before the narrative moves forward again into the 7th century. I'm letting you know now because lots of listeners don't catch the episodes in the week they're released. So whenever you get this, as long as we haven't reached 600 yet in the live podcasts, then you can still send in questions. You can leave them on Facebook or at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or email them to me at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com or tweet me at thetvcriticorg. You can't say I didn't give you lots of options. If you want to ask questions about me or the podcast, that's fine, but I will answer those in a brief Mike Duncan-like style as I want this podcast to remain about Byzantium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.